you do have a long way to go to get all those people registered of voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote, the podcast where election experts help you, the American voter, understand how elections work and how you can help restore confidence in American democracy. At the Trust the Vote Project, we spent over 15 years talking with and learning from election administrators and government officials about how votes are cast, counted, and reported so that we can help ensure elections are run in a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent manner. On Dead Men Don't Vote, we share what we've learned, provide insights from the world-class team we've built, interview leading election experts and thought leaders who are passionate about our democracy, and we explore election issues and controversies. We want to rise above the partisanship and muddied waters to answer all your questions about elections in a way that's pro-democracy and inspires trust in our election processes. I'm Gregory Miller, software industry veteran, non-practicing IP lawyer, and tireless advocate for verifiable elections. I'll be your host for today's episode, which will be the second half of my interview with Dana Debovar, the recently resigned county clerk for Travis County, Texas. Now, in part one, we largely talked about her reflections on her nearly four decades of service as an election official. Part two is a little bit, um, well, shall we say spicier. We're talking about election controversies. We're talking about grand jury prosecutions, and if you can believe it, there's even a little bit of nudity sprinkled in. Obviously, I'm no stranger to controversy. So, Cameron, let's dig in, shall we? That sounds great. Here's a little bit heavier lift, but easy one first, which is now that we're going to call you the wise oracle of the whole election administrators, and, and they can benefit from your advice. And I truly believe that. Mm-hmm. What on earth do you now see that we can do to restore confidence in elections and their outcomes. What do we as a nation have to do to get our election mojo back? Yeah. And flattered that you think I have an answer. <laughs> well, you have a view. Yeah. At this point, you must. Well, I, I, what I would say is that all the things that we've talked about, the ways to safeguard the integrity of hiring and firing for elections administrators, ways to protect the use of technology, ways to make sure that we can give voters every opportunity they can have and don't put obstacles in their path. All of those things are part of what we all need to do to restore confidence in elections. But every time we do something helpful, let's say we get countywide voting centers, so often that usually hard-fought and hard-funded progressions in elections get just derailed by the social media lies. You cannot function in a world where you're constantly having people told that you're a crook and a fake and you can't trust anything you say. That's that's defamation. That's not the way we should be living. And it's not right. And until we fix that huge problem, I think we're going to continue to have this problem of how on earth do we expect our voters and our people to trust anything Mm -hmm. that's said when so much of it is contradictory and just wants to separate us. It wants to cause problems. And I I don't like that. What do you take of this ruckus about moving to all hand counting of ballots, eliminating the tabulation machines altogether? What do you think about that? What do you have to say about that? Well, that is a personal pet peeve of mine. I want to question 
the people who are bringing that up, because every time I have questioned them, and I've been subjected to a lot of this, they are dismissive of any of the things that jurisdictions actually need in order to be able to run free and fair elections. They don't listen. They don't want to know. The fact is, hand counting is the most error-ridden way to tally an election, and it's extremely slow process. It works great in Europe where you have parliamentary systems where there's only one or two races on the ballot. It's a nightmare when you're trying to do typical American elections, which could easily have 50 or 100 people on the ballot in in Austin. The down ballot. 100 people. Yeah, is is not unusual. Right, the down ballot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that less political involvement, more professionalism, more training, and more appreciation for the work, work these folks did sets us off in the right direction. But- I think we've got one big problem that you and I can talk about if you want, and that is that how can we expect people to function in a culture of lies? I mean, we have a whole bunch of people who hear this stuff and unfortunately believe it. And the research shows that once your sort of your brain is committed to a particular thought pattern, it is almost impossible to get you to change it because our brains are meant to reinforce our own sense of equilibrium. We're meant to try to provide that kind of stability in our minds. We don't want to be pressured into thinking that, oh, well, this won't work. Therefore, we have to destroy all technology. That kind of black and white thinking, all of that right. is dysfunctional, and it's not right. helpful. That's we certainly need technology. We certainly deal with that daily at the OSIN Institute and the Trust the Vote Project, which is trying to explain that there is an appropriate uh, application of technology. But I have to say to your point about veracity and truths, which we could probably spend another hour on. So, you know, tell me about one or two of the most important things that you think people need to understand about the voting process that in your experience, based on all that pillaring, that most often they don't realize. I think the fundamental gap in voters' understanding about how elections are conducted is that they have no idea about the basic chain of custody that happens with every single step in elections. They don't know that when you perform a test to say, yes, all of my candidates line up with all the precincts they're supposed to be in, uh, and that test gets locked down. They don't know about that test or how incredibly important it is to make sure that what you deliver to voters on election day for ballots is correct. They know nothing about chain of uh, custody. The closest I think you can get to people understanding chain of custody is the rules about evidence. When they think about, uh, you know, the crime shows on TV, they can get the idea that, okay, well, whoever held the evidence first is going to have to sign it over to the next person and they're going to have to sign it over and then it's going to have to be locked up. Well, that evidence example is the perfect definition of what I think voters really need to understand about elections. There are so many checks and balances at every step along the way and everything is tracked. And the irony of that, that all of those precautions are taken and all those steps are so well documented, is that the truth is elections administrators have no control over most of the events surrounding an election. It's mostly controlled Mm. by the candidates in the campaigns. We do not control turnout. We don't even control when voters decide to go vote. We just right. have to be able to react and respond as quickly as possible because in the end, the thing that matters most about our jobs is are we able to produce timely results on election night? So much confidence and faith is still placed in that last action on election night. Right. And it's interesting because that 
in of itself, that whole chain of custody, stewardship, providence of the ballots, et cetera, is giving rise to so much legislation going on right now with the perception of 2020 hacked, tampered, rigged. And now we have laws. Here's one for you. You may have seen where now it is uh, going to be treated as a crime if a ballot box is left unattended, I forget the jurisdiction where this is in, but I read about this recently. And, and my thinking was, gosh, you, you, you suddenly need a comfort break and, and you have to part with the ballot box for a few minutes. And technically now that's a crime. Yeah. Felony, I think. Yeah. I mean, they're really going after these heavy crimes, heavy punishment. So with that in mind, looking back now, what would you tell others is probably the most difficult aspect. We I thought it was I thought it was public relations. Now I'm thinking maybe it's something else. What is the, the most difficult aspect of administering election? It's the one thing that I think we're not going to ever be clear of. And that is that elections are all about managing people. You've got to manage the voters that are coming in. You've got to manage the election judges for their training and all the workers, all the staff in the back room. All of that is all about managing people, making sure they have the skills that they need, the protections that they need to not make a mistake, and then everything else so that we can all depend on them to deliver an election to us on election day. And it's that quality of making sure everybody knows what their role is and understands when they get into trouble or when they have a question, who do they call and that they act right away when they've got a problem. All of those aspects, no matter which group you're managing, even unruly, misbehaving poll watchers are still a problem of managing people. Because typically when people behave badly and act out, it's for a reason. It's because they're frightened, they're scared, they've been told yeah. something that's probably wrong. And you've got to try to find a way to connect with them before they'll ever turn down the heat enough to listen to what you're saying. So I really think it's all about people management. And with that in mind, I think all of the new training programs that I have offered to help my colleagues with all now have a focus on de-escalation. We have to teach our people not only how to connect with a voter, a poll watcher, a worker who's having a problem, they're upset, they don't know what's going on. How do you get them, you know, back feeling comfortable again and understanding what the procedures are without connecting with them? And there's sometimes when these folks are just so badly behaved, it's really not possible to establish a personal connection. And so one of the other things we're trying to teach people, teach work, especially election workers about, about de-escalation is don't presume that you're the one who has to do it because there may very well be likely somebody else in the polling place who's going to do a better job than you of dealing with somebody who's just completely offending you. Well, with that in mind, I'm going to ask something in total sincerity that you can opt out of. But I'm wondering if okay. we can talk a little about your running with the Texas AG in 2021. I mean, seriously, if it's something you'd rather not, and actually it's been discussed elsewhere, I acknowledge that, yeah. I'm good. But I feel like you might want to offer a few pent-up deserved comments since you've had little opportunity to do that in retrospect. So can we go there? Yes, we certainly can. I'm happy to talk about uh, the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton. All right. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about okay. that, just a few, and then we can wrap up with some fun stuff. Okay. So there is this festering issue of poll watchers. Set the stage here about what actually happened versus the claims. Okay. All right. And you're cool to do this. You're okay going there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Is- I'm, I'm happy okay. to. I've already right. talked about it. I'm happy to talk about it again and to try to offer some advice to any other elections administrators who find that's where I'm. That's where I'm heading. 
Unfortunate circumstance. Well, what happened was I've always had poll watchers. Poll watchers are always welcome. They've always been well taken care of in my office. We're happy to have them. Several years ago, when we got our new voting system rebuilt and redesigned to keep security in place in the physical rooms of the counting station, we did not want to have computers that were connecting with the website in the same room or anywhere close to computers that were taking in election results from the field. So all of that had to be carefully split out, separate rooms, separate programming and plumbing and electrical, if you will, to make sure that those that they were they were air gapped areas and you couldn't get through them without a lot of trouble or a big deal. In other words, we wanted to keep those rooms separate and we wanted for each of those rooms to be able to offer a chance for poll watchers to look in and see what was going on, see and hear everything. So let me just say that is what we started with. We gave poll watchers full access to all the rooms. They could see and hear everything. Then we had a couple of poll watchers, one of them in particular, who was, I guess you could call a ringleader. I'm not really sure. Anyway, what she did was she wanted to go and basically sit in the lap of one of the election workers who was data entering election results from election night. And by I mean in the lap, because there wasn't room to stand behind the person. There wasn't room to stand on either side. And she had been given the opportunity to be right on top of them looking through a window where they could see everything. And and didn't we have some COVID protocols going on during this? Thank you for bringing that up, because at the time we were in the middle of a pandemic. We didn't know very much. If you remember, we were still wiping things down and washing our groceries. We knew nothing about how this thing's. Yeah, it was November 2020. So anyway, what happened was is that this one particular worker, separate from all the others, the others were actually pretty well behaved. But this one began screaming and yelling and pounding her palms and fists on the glass windows between the rooms and going from room to room, screaming at people about how there was theft and fraud going on and she couldn't see what was happening when it was clear that she could see everything. I was not there. I was in another part of the office doing by mail voting, quite frankly. So she was just making life hell for all the other people who were there trying to observe for their candidate or their cause or the workers who are trying to get the work done. She interrupted and interfered with the flow of the work. And finally, one of her fellow poll watchers called the sheriff and turned her in. I had nothing to do with it. None of my people had anything to do with it. But we Mm. are entirely grateful to the person who finally stood up to the abuse that they were all having to undergo and force her to put on a mask and behave like a responsible scientific. So it was one of her own poll watching colleagues. That's right. You did not call law enforcement to have her. I had nothing to do with it. Nothing. They showed up in my office to speak to the uh, the presiding judge of the counting station. They talked to that person. And at that point, that's when I heard somebody was about to get arrested. And I came out from the other workroom into the counting station and heard and saw what she had been doing. And I tried to talk to her. And all she did was start screaming at me. She was unhinged. And it Mm. was just, I mean, it was a complete freak out for everybody. So she got hauled off. She refused to stop screaming and pounding on the windows. She refused to uh, follow the law. She was wearing a wire. As an attorney, you know that you do not wear a wire when you're around other attorneys and you're all doing the same job. So she broke that law or rather that rule of the state bar. And she's up on charges regarding that as well. 
So this wasn't just that she was trespassing and being disruptive inside the polling place. So how did did all this end up in the attorney general's hand to kind of move forward with that? She didn't much like it that, you know, her own people turned her in. So she decided she was going to make me pay for that. She wrote out a lengthy list of accusations of the horrible things I had done and how I had suppressed her, even though she was allowed to scream and yell for a couple of hours, that I had done all these things to interfere with their job when, in fact, I had done everything I could to make sure all the other poll watchers were not interfered with. Right. So she wrote this lengthy list of false accusations to the Secretary of State's office in Texas. The Secretary of State, I, I don't know if they did it reluctantly or gleefully, but they handed it over to the Attorney General. And the Attorney General, if you know anything about our special person in Texas, loves to sue people and take on these causes that he calls voter fraud. So he took all of those lies that had been forwarded from the person mm-hmm. to the Secretary of State to the AG, and he did something then illegal, which is what got him in trouble. So what happened was he bypassed using a district attorney and went directly to a grand jury without right, the right. DA and then shopped around for a county that had more favorable feeling towards him that was sort of close to my own county. So he went outside the county. He did not use a DA and he went to the grand jury. The grand jury looked at the facts because I presented them with photos and drawings of exactly sure. where these people were allowed to have access and that they had access right. to everything and had had access for 30 years. I mean, you know, this was nothing new to us. And the grand jury in the adjacent county said, no, Bill, she is innocent. And shortly after that, the court. So the grand jury declined to indict. That is exactly right. Okay. They said there's okay. no evidence. Okay. No, Bill, right. I'm innocent. So, so ultimately, the prosecution refused to pursue it, but it appears yeah, that here's what else there was did. no cause of action. Yeah, well, there so, wasn't. I mean, there was nothing for him to do. And two other things happened to him. First of all, I was um, no-billed in April of that year. I didn't really find out because of the lack of a uh, proper pathway to get this done. I didn't find out that I had been no-billed until July. And, and no-billed means that there was no innocent. indictment forthcoming. Yeah. yeah, innocent. No, No crime. No crime. They refused to do what the AG was asking, in other words. Sure. Yeah. So after that, then the courts stepped in and they said that the process that the AG had used uh, to shop the case around and then take it directly to a grand jury bypassing a DA was illegal and that he was forever prevented from doing that again. Well, he didn't like that either. No, of course not. Yeah, of course course not. not. So he lost his case with me. It was proven that all of his charges were false. The person who was the one who was suppressing the poll watchers is still under review by local law enforcement authorities and the Bar Association. And I hope that they will finish their work soon. Again, I'm not a party to that process. And who knows? Maybe, you know, there is one. Let me add one more thing. There's one thing I want to add about this horrible, terrible, awful bill called Senate Bill 1 that's out of Texas that says voters really are having a hard time using uh, by mail voting now. One of the things that that the whole by mail voting process opened up was that if if you wanted to, to have, and I'm sorry, I just I, I've looked at my paper and now I've lost my train of thought. If you if you wanted to have protections from poll watchers 
disturbing the peace or interfering with other voters or other right. people who are trying to do jobs, which is definitely what this person did. She was yep. successful. That if yep. we want to take care of that, then what we do is we say, okay, Senate Bill 1 said, well, now we're going to have st- live streaming video, audio video from the counting station right. to see how everybody's right. behaving. And at first I thought that was kind of creepy big brother. But sure. now I've decided uh, that it's the only exactly. good news in Senate Bill yeah. 1, and that is that we're going to be live streaming, filming from the counting station. And so when you hear these awful lies about how an election administrator misbehaved, you can go online and look at it. And as a matter of fact, that's what so many thousands and thousands of people did on election night that it overwhelmed the server. And they had to find right, right. a way well, to bring it up. And that's the value of transparency. So I, I gather that in a little bit of time we have left here, I gather what I would summarily say is it sounds to me like what you would tell other administrators is put the nonpartisan transparent cameras in place and roll tape and let everybody watch how this process works. That's right. Give yourself some credit. And then, you know, it's fight back. Do not let these people say this stuff about you without countering every single bad thing they say. Every lie they tell should be countered with the truth. And the more yeah. you can make it audio, video, the better. I got two questions left in our remaining time, and and I def- definitely want to get to the last one. But here's one I'd like to give you a shot at just because I've been dying to hear this, right? So I, I know that after four decades, I've been told you have a trove of hilarious stories from from the trenches on the front lines of democracy. So please briefly indulge us with your favorite funniest thing, perhaps. Okay, all right. Well, I, I, the, the one that I think I have the, the most fun telling about happened early on when we were in an optical scan environment. So if you know anything about optical scan, they're run pieces of paper run through a scanner, right? Right. The, the ultimate public record. And we had a Republican candidate who hugely lost a county commissioner's race. And he came to me and said that I had reversed the totals, that that the, the opponent got his totals, and that he wanted a recount. And so I, I told the fellow, I said, well, that's ridiculous. Um, of course, I don't have any way to reverse totals, but if you want a recount, I'm happy to conduct one for you. And let's talk about the details about totals. Was he within the margin of being able to ask for a recount? No, he was not. He paid cash for it, at least oh, okay. to promised to pay. You have to put up a bond and all that. So now yeah, so he, he, was, funded he was just he was thousands and thousands of votes out of the running and he still right. insisted on a recount. In fact it was so weird that I at one point after we had finished counting all of the early voting, which was a smattering of all over the county from where votes for him potentially could come from. So it was a really yeah. good test of the system. It, it, the numbers were coming out identical. And even in optical scan, you know there's always one and two off in that system. So right. but they were coming out identical and so I finally went to him and I said, what is, what are you worried about? What, what's wrong here? Clearly you thought the totals were reversed and that's not true. How did you base this on this request for a recount? What did you base it on? And he said, well, somebody told me that what you had done was you had taken the plug for the scanner and plugged it in upside down. (laughs) And I said to him, Lauren, honey, it's a three prong plug. (laughs) And then I had to sue him to get him to pay back for the recount. That's priceless. <laughs> the plug was Another reversed. quick story I can tell you, which I bet you every elections administrator out there has one very similar. We had right, a real fast. time that was, you know, a, a, a local election, which can always be contentious. And so a sure. local person came in wearing their candidate on the face of their T-shirt, walked in wearing a campaign electioneering T-shirt. 
So the judge told her, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you can't wear that T-shirt inside the polling place you're electioneering. And she said, oh, you know, and he said, she said, well, what am I supposed to do? And she said, well, there are different ways you can go outside and, you know, find a place to turn it inside out or we'll give you this little paper thing. And she said, oh, I can fix that. Proceeded to pick up her T-shirt, take it off, turn it inside out and put it back on while standing in front of the election judge. And the reports that came into my office were, there's this very young, very gorgeous, very out of control young woman who's disrobing in the polling place. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. <laughs> she was okay. in compliance when she turned her T-shirt around. I have to ask, if you look back on almost four decades of work, why did you do it? Why does this work matter? As you tell a high school or college student who's yeah. considering the role of an election administrator, why do you do what you do? And, and what made you do it? To begin with, when I ran for county clerk, I ran on a platform to fix all the other problems in the office and elections wasn't even really mentioned during the campaign. So that's sort of interesting. And then when I took it over, I realized, wow, this is a really cool job. I really like this. And it wasn't too long after that that I just flat fell in love with doing it. And it was the idea of producing election results for a peaceful changeover of power and of authority in offices year after year after year that made me just love voters and love this whole process. I've seen it in other places. People are the same all over the world. But the American experiment with democracy, it's been a constant fight to include people, to expand it more and more. I don't think those fights are over, especially as we deal with technology, because I think we've got to convince people that just like it's okay to use technology in your life and you accept certain risks, it's okay to use election technology in elections and accept certain risks and then test for those and protect against them and do all the other things that you would do. You don't just throw the baby out with the bath. So I guess we have we have this remarkable experiment where we've got these human beings, these people just coming from all walks of life who are convinced of their proper role in this democracy that we're still trying to build ourselves. So here these folks show up in a polling place on election day or during early voting. They typically volunteer or they might get paid a small salary and they contribute all those hours. And it's been that way for a couple of hundred years. That is, to yeah. me, the most remarkable part of it. It isn't so much that I fell in love with elections. It's that democracy loves elections. Our voters love elections. And we've got to make it, as you said, not only safe and correct and accurate, but fun for people to go vote again. I think exercising your right to vote is one of the most remarkable things you can teach your children and one of the best things that can make you feel good after a long day. Go vote. It sounds like in some in summation that you did it because of the passion, the passion for democracy, your inner patriotism. And for that, I think the industry and the business of election administration is sad to see you retire. Can't wait to hear what the next thing is. But I sure hope that you can help impart that passion and commitment to others who are up and coming. And I just want to thank you for this hour. This has been amazing. Thank you again for these wonderful questions. They were they were frank, they were funny, they were piercing. I appreciate it. Well, and it was just really wonderful because we, we were able to have a nice conversation that you kept creating questions for me. So with that, we're going to say, call it a wrap and look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks very much, Dana Debovar, the top elections person for four decades in Texas, Travis County to be exact. Thank you, Dana. Congratulations, Greg. That was just a great interview. I got a really big laugh on uh, Dana's 
uh, T-shirt story because that seems to happen in all election jurisdictions across the country. First time I heard it in Virginia uh, and not the last. It involved some of the old voting equipment that used to have the curtains that you went behind to pull the lever. Uh, and the fella had gone in after having turned his T-shirt around. Uh, and when he came back out, he had turned it around yet again so that his uh, candidate's name and uh, likeness were easily displayed again. And at that point, there really wasn't anything you can do because he'd already voted. And the funny thing is, I know everybody thinks, you know, Florida man, Florida woman. We don't actually have that happen very often in Florida because there's no restriction on the kind of T-shirt that a voter can wear. If they want to wear campaign T-shirts, they're more than welcome to. It's just that poll workers are not allowed to. There are so many things that came out of the second part for me, and besides the the humorous things, the thing I keep coming back to is how we restore confidence in elections. Uh, and she had a long time to see a lot of change in that regard. You know, both of you, Jenny and, and Cameron, you've been in the trenches on the front lines of democracy. You've seen the challenges. What do you think about her comments on that? So, Greg, I mean, one of the big reasons that I ended up getting involved with OSET is I met you at the EVN conference and heard what you were doing. And my immediate reaction was, oh, my God, there's a way to solve one of the perpetual problems in elections. We can't restore confidence with one thing, but there are several different issues at play. And one of them is actually having software in voting equipment that if there's some controversy over whether or not it did what it was supposed to do, there's a way to go back and actually look at it and compare it to a banked copy and that transparency of the coding as well as everything else. So to me, what OSET is trying to do is a key element in trying to restore confidence. But there are other things as well. I'm a huge proponent of the whole foxes guarding the hen house. Well, indeed. Jenya? One of the ways to restore confidence in elections, quite frankly, is when an administrator makes a mistake, instead of being overly confident or denying it ever happened, acknowledge it and get ahead of it and assure the voters we are working on getting this fixed. And if you can, walk them through the process. Absolutely. And I will tell you, we had that issue happen in Fairfax. We were doing three cap central absentee precincts for a presidential election, and it takes a long time to get all of those counted. And so numbers were coming in, but not as quickly as as voters would like. And it turned out that we had managed to finish one of the precincts, but not the one that people were particularly paying attention to. And it was driving them nuts. And it was just a matter of you can only do so many things before people have to shut down for the night and go get some sleep. But the one of the board members stepped up and basically said, here's what's going on. We will take care of this. You know, here's why it's a problem. Here's how it's being resolved. And that just makes a huge difference in the partisans having trust. And typically, as long as the partisans have trust, the rest of the voters will as well. Yeah, I ran into that with poll watchers in that poll watchers can annoy me very easily because I don't have a lot of patience for people looking over my shoulder. But in 2020, I wound up spending more time with the poll watchers than I did my family. And one of the things that I wanted to do was I didn't want them snooping around and getting into things that they shouldn't or trying to talk to my other workers because Florida has pretty strict laws about that. So if they had a question, I would answer it and I would be very blunt about it. And when they saw that the ship was being run well, 
after a while, they basically just would start coming in just to see how we were doing and going, why don't the other places do what you're doing? They're not doing all that well. And that was probably the best compliment I could have received. It's that when you let people observe you and you're not defensive about it, and you're willing to be patient and take their questions in good faith, it makes a huge difference for a lot of people. And it lets them know, I'm here to earn your trust. I do not demand your trust without any justification. Yeah, and we're seeing that now. I mean, right now in Clackamas County, Oregon, we're we're seeing these these issues about transparency, communication, um, getting out in front of that. But you know, that that raises another point that that Dana spoke about, and that is the importance of increasing the understanding of the election process. Right, part of that transparency is is not just you know transparency in the technology, as as you mentioned, Cameron, with regard to software and te- and technology and and the like. But it's also about the processes and and the policies of how elections are administered and making certain that people understand how things actually work and aren't left to to um, you know go to go to Facebook to figure out how it works because that's the last place they're probably going to get uh, correctly or clearly informed. So I, she has some interesting thoughts about that. I'm sure you concur. Well, the truth is bad, but the imagination is even worse. I, I totally agree. The, the challenge for election officials very often is a lot of information is out there for the general public, but frankly, they don't go reading what's there and they don't go looking for it until they have some reason to wonder about it. And usually the point at which they're wondering about it is when election officials are so busy, it's hard to sort of get in front of things and say, I know that there's some concerns about X and here's what you need to know and understand. But the the bottom line is elections are complex and what happens in genius part of the world uh, and the way they do things are going to be different than how it happens in Fairfax County. And frankly, the way it happens in Fairfax County can be different than the way it is in Virginia Beach. And so a piece of this is that voters need to understand that it's not just the whole country doing an election. It is 50 states doing an election. And on many of the rules related to elections, it's literally each jurisdiction in the state may have different rules. And so starting with an understanding that this really is a federal system, meaning that at the state and local level, things can change and not making assumptions based on their voting experience in a different state or assumptions based on their family member had happened to them in a different city is an important piece of being open to the fact that there are differences. Yeah. I mean, from, from Polk County to Fairfax County to Travis County to Clackamas County, there's 3,300 counties, 10,000 or more jurisdictions in this country, and everyone uh, has a different way of doing things. And that is part of the thing that needs to be communicated to people, part of the, the education to, to help make it a little bit more resilient. But it's not all difficult to deal with. There's actually some lighter moments too. And we heard some of those in, in the second uh, part of the episode. What else struck you about uh, some of, of, of Dana's remarks on, in reflecting where she's been and where she may be going? So I really thought the issue of hand counting was an important one. And I have some experience that's sort of relevant in the sense that I was working with the Puerto Rican Election Commission uh, for several years. And Puerto Rico was still hand counting ballots when I was working with them. And a hand counting ballots is slow. And hand counting ballots can create more errors than if you use machine counts. But 
if you've got a model, um, again, foxes guarding the hen house, uh, that sort of drives the system for counting, it can, in fact, engender great trust. Um, but people need to understand it is going to take time. I don't think Puerto Rico ever had an election island-wide with a couple million voters that didn't take about three weeks. So if we understand and we as a society are willing to live with waiting that long to know the winner, then hand counting can be a good option. But it's got to be well thought out in order to do it and to create the trust that needs to be there if you're going to do that. Jenny, I know that you've got, uh, and having authored a couple of blog posts recently on the the, uh, the challenges of hand count, I know that you've got a sort of a, a principle that suggests that there's really, you need both. That that fair? Yes, I think it is fair. You can hack a machine, you can bribe a human. You can't bribe a machine and hack a human. So, and also humans get tired, machines don't. One of the things with um, the hand counting is if you're in a smaller jurisdiction or you don't have a super complex ballot or you don't do something like ranked choice voting, hand counting works just fine. That's not the problem. It's when you get into larger jurisdictions, complicated ballots, um, ranked choice voting. That's where you really kind of need an impartial machine just to make it help you ensure accuracy. And if you need to go into the hand count, well, that's one of the things that a risk limiting audit helps you determine is what is your acceptable risk limit before you go, oh, wait, yeah, we actually do need to do a full hand count. Yeah. I, I know how we always hate to compare banking to 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 elections, but again, you get that same sort of visual of, you know, the machine counting the dollar bills and stacking them up at the bank. And still there's a human that's sort of verifying that with spot checks of selective hand counting to go with it. And Greg, I would note, sort of following on Genius' comment, when you have a recount, that's effectively what you're doing. You're letting the machine do much of the counting, but you've set up the machine to spit out any ballot that doesn't appear to the machine to have a mark. And then those can get hand counted. And yeah. we had a very close uh, attorney general's race a few years ago in Virginia. It wasn't by any stretch every ballot, but there were more than zero ballots where somebody hadn't marked it in order for the machine to count it, but they had in fact marked it once you printed it out, you could see things. My, my favorite was the ballot where somebody had gone through and not done the, the fill in the dot, but they had gone through on the people. You could tell the people they wanted to vote for because they would fill in parts of the letters of the name. So for example, if somebody's name was Dave, they would fill in the D and they would fill in the little triangle on the A so hmm. that you could see a pattern to suggest their vote choice. But unless we had had reason the, the election was so close, we would never have, quote, counted that ballot because the election was too far away to have bothered to get into that level of, of checking all the ballots. That's the most fine-grained ballot adjudication I have ever heard of. That's pretty cool. You know, one thing that did strike me about that interview was this tremendous challenge that she had in dealing with the government questioning how she conducted her elections. I mean, that that whole protracted run-in uh, with the attorney general, um, that's got to be difficult for an election official. Cameron? <laughs> oh, no <laughs> question about that. Uh, it, the stress levels of the job are just uh, off the charts. And um, 
it, it for me, it brought back a little bit of PTSD listening to Dana from my time at Fairfax County and when I felt like I was the focus of what sure appeared to be a partisan witch hunt. It really does get hard for election officials sometimes. To Dana's everlasting credit, she ran headlong into the fracas instead of running away and hiding. And she did harness the power of technology to help say, look, I'm making this effort in good faith. I am going to have cameras in the in the counting room. We are going to have people in here watching and there is nothing to hide. And I'm not afraid of accusations because I can defend myself against them. It says a lot about who she is, both as a dedicated public servant and as a person. And I thought that was a tremendous statement to transparency too, right? Bring the cameras in everywhere. Let's do this. And and I, I just want to underscore, I think there's a growing awareness that it's important to bring the cameras in on some of the places that otherwise seem to be off base. But there's always the challenge that election officials have to deal with as to how you allowed the transparency in without ever tying a particular voter to their ballot. And sometimes, depending on what you're trying to do, that can be a challenge. Well, of course, that's what for in the context of absentees and provisionals in particular. So it's amazing. Just looking at all the things that Dana has seen uh, across her near four decades and, and now to be taking that forward into what's next for her, which she hasn't declared, but we know she has uh, several interests uh, that include international election observation and whatnot. So I have to say that uh, I'm really pleased to hear that she is going to actually join us in Copenhagen in a couple of weeks for the Global Democracy Summit. So at least you, Cameron, will get a chance to reconnect with her there. Yep. And I'm looking forward to it, Greg. So that's it for our interview with Dana Debovar. Our next episode will focus on durable paper ballots of record. And remember that if you'd like to ask us an elections-related question or otherwise be in touch, please follow us on Twitter at Dead Men Don't Vote or at Trust the Vote uh, or on Facebook at Dead Men Don't Vote. Uh, remember, there's no apostrophe out there. Or, of course, you can just email us at inquiry at osetinstitute.org. Remember that at Dead Men Don't Vote, uh, you have the speak pipe. You can also ask us a question there so that we can answer it in our regular grab bag of questions. Uh, We'll also be doing a Twitter space on durable paper ballots, uh, so make sure to check Twitter for that announcement. Finally, remember, as always, please take a moment to write a short review on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that more people hear our message about how we can improve our elections. Again, I'm Gregory Miller, and on behalf of Cameron Quinn and Jenya Coulter, thank you for listening to Dead Men Don't Vote. Please remember, it's your civic duty and civil right to participate in elections. Let's all be pro-democracy by prioritizing country over party and supporting free and fair elections in your community and across America. Until next time, make sure you're properly registered and ready to vote because the primaries are all over us right now and our democracy depends on you.